Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be talking about the business of Custom Crush. And our guest is Robert Morris, founder and general manager of Grand Crew Custom Crush. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks, guys. Uh, glad to be on board. I was hoping you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background. <laughs> well, my background's a little interesting. It's not 100% related to wine. I'm actually I graduated from UCSB as a mechanical engineer and went to work at Hewlett Packard right upon graduating way back in 1997. A very mechanically inclined person, very like set on being an engineer ever since I was maybe 10 years old, I guess. And it was a great career. In the process of that and moving into our first home, we met some neighbors who happened to be in the wine business. We happened to be in the wine drinking business. So it was kind of a good relationship. Those two gentlemen happened to be the founding partners of Copan Wines. And over a you know, a couple of bottles of rosé one night, we became instant friends. And it led to an invitation for me to come over to the winery and check things out. And oh, by the way, can you fix a couple things? And yeah, sure, you know, I can weld, I can machine parts, do whatever. I'm an engineer, right? So kind of started moonlighting there right around 2001, 2002 timeframe. And by 2004, the decision was made that I needed to leave the world of engineering and become full-time at the winery. So I joined as one of the partners in Copan Wines. And back then it was called Copan Custom Crush in November of 04. We went through and designed and built Copan Wines in 2007. And that's the facility on Eastside Road. I did a lot of the architectural work and oversaw the construction for that. Meanwhile, growing the Custom Crush business. And in 2009, we rebranded as Punch Down Cellars. That became quite a large custom crush operation, still exists today in Santa Rosa. But around about 2016, I kind of had a change of focus. And then Grand Cru was uh, born and we built it ready for the 2017 harvest. So yeah, I've been in the wine business full time since 04. Never in my lifetime expected to be doing that as my full-time job, but here we are today. And I enjoyed my time at HP. I checked the box. I was an engineer for a while and I'm still an engineer today, I guess, just engineering wine and facilities. So 
That's what I love about the wine industry. It brings people from all different backgrounds together from a passion of what they're doing. Just before we dive too deep into the actual interview, I think it'd be good to define custom crush for our audience members who might not be familiar with that term, you know, because we're going to talk about Grand Cru Custom Crush, which is based in Sonoma County. But having that term kind of defined, I think will help base this the rest of this conversation. Sure. It's kind of a wide definition, to be honest with you, because there's the grower out there who has a whole bunch of grapes that he just doesn't have a home for. And he wants to pick them and get them made into some sort of wine. And whether he's going to take his odds on the bulk market or, you know, his cousin Jimmy's got an outlet to buy it and do whatever, he can then have those grapes custom crushed into a finished product that, you know, is in some tank in the middle of Lodi or wherever it might be, or in the middle of Napa for that reason. So there's that. There's custom crush also applies to people who want to have things, you know, they've sourced some grapes and they want to have like a private label done, so on and so forth. And then you get all the way to the other extreme, which I think is kind of where we fit in, obviously. And you custom crush, you operated a custom crush facility when you don't necessarily have the wherewithal and the business size yet to own your own physical brick and mortar plant. So that's like the boutique high-end custom crush and that's where Grown Crew falls and several of the other folks within the business, basically just putting the roof over the head of these small boutique brands that are not ready for their own place yet and maybe never will be, which is a perfectly fine thing. It's just understanding where you fit in the market. So, And so was that your inspiration to start Grand Crew Custom Crush or how did that get started? No, that... so. It's an interesting thing with a lot of custom crush places, my last facility included, we weren't permitted as an open to the public facility. And the whole trick to the wine business, don't let anybody really tell you different, but uh, the whole trick is, is you have to sell the wine. (laughs) So grapes want to be grapes. Vines want to produce grapes. The sun rises, the sun sets. We always have harvest every year, and if you're pulling fruit from a premium spot, chances are you're going to end up with something pretty good, (laughs) but you got to sell that product. So we would see people coming to visit, and they're not supposed to be there, but they were there, which is fine. It's a private invitation, and these people would show up fresh off the plane or fresh off their drive from the East Bay or South Bay, wherever. And they would come into a functioning winery, but not a place of hospitality. So it's cold, it's dark, and within you know a matter of you know 15 minutes, these people are frozen. They want to go have lunch, and the experience is over with. Well, what that client at your custom crush facility is trying to do is they're really trying to build the path to a direct-to-consumer sale because the only outlet they have if they don't have that one-on-one face-to-face deal is that they have to sell it to a restaurant or they're selling it to a distribution company through the three-tiered system and it's eventually getting to Atlanta, Georgia. And so we all understand kind of how that path works, but that also is a direct hit to the potential margin in the wine. So I was witnessing these clients and they just, they're struggling because they're losing all this margin because they can't build their DTC business. They might have a mailing list and, you know, they might be in a lot of restaurants and they're trying, but if they had a way to not only make their wines in a premium location, but to also host tastings and sales directly, 
well, that would be a winning combination. So between Todd and Aaron, my business partners, and then my wife and I, we kind of came up with the concept and that's how Brown Crew was born. Got it. So that's kind of the differentiation versus quote unquote normal custom crush facility. As people think about using custom crush in general, whether it's Grand Cru or someone else, how do they think about when they should use custom crush versus renting or a warehouse or owning your own winery facility? Well, the the cost of in today's conversation is is diff, it, you know two years ago it was expensive, three years ago it was expensive, or even more, but today it's astronomical on the startup costs of your own facility. So it's really hard to go rent or find the perfect space and where you're only going to be paying enough rent to cover only what you need. And then you have to get it permitted with the city because there we go, you know, government agencies, everything's got to have a permit. The equipment, the equipment in the winery is probably, if you're a businessman and you look at it, it's probably one of the worst used assets around, right? <laughs> because you have this beautiful $38,000 distemmer. And if it's just your own production, you might use that piece of equipment for 10 days out of a 365 day year. Well, that doesn't look so good on the books. Whereas at a custom crush facility, we use that machine every day for two and a half months straight, you know, because we're harvesting grapes and processing for so many different people. So if you have an endless pot of money and you don't care how the books are going to look, by all means, you should build your own place. You know, hire a consultant, get it done. It'll be great. But it's not the way to financial freedom and a successful business in the wine industry at all. It's not. So brands that are starting up, they really do need, and really there's different levels of custom crush too. I know one of the things you guys had mentioned in some of our pre-interview stuff is talking about places like Crush Pad that was in San Francisco. And I believe there's another, there was another one at one time where they were actually focusing on like single barrel lots for people. A lot of that was marketed towards kind of a corporate business building activity. But some people actually started and launched brands out of those facilities where they started small. They made one barrel of Cabernet, they made two barrels of Syrah, whatever. And they started their business going and then they graduated to other larger facilities. But that's really the way that these small brands kind of need to go about wading into these waters, unless there's just endless amounts of money to burn, which some people have that. (laughs) Most don't. (laughs) So... So you mentioned, obviously, the efficiency and optimization that you get for leveraging equipment for longer periods of time and also covering the hurdle of building the brand through hospitality and generating your DTC sales. But there must be other challenges in a custom crush facility that are, you know, vex you, keep you kind of awake at night. And I'm assuming that some of that may be due to like, how do you, there's a lot of logistics that happen and maybe flowing the different grapes at different times and making sure that that's all at the right time and everybody gets what they need from you is probably a big part of that. Yeah, exactly. So even if it was not a custom crush operation, if it was your own winery, right? These are all the other problems that as a client, hopefully if you're in the right place, you don't have to worry about this stuff. Maintenance on all the equipment, the PG&E bill, which is Let's not even talk about it. The overhead of just the brick and mortar facility, the labor, the payroll, the, you know, on and on and on and on and on. All the supplies, right? The tartaric acid that you need, the sanitizing chemicals you need, the argon gas, which is crazy, right? So 
we as a processing plant, as we're kind of the factory, right? Yeah, we're a winery and we make killer wine and it's all great, but like we're really, we're a factory. So all of these systems have to work. And that's really where a lot of our focus is. I've got an amazing staff and I've got guys who are, you know, boots on the ground and they're just doing the work every day. I have a director of winemaking that works for me that is really, he helps with a lot of that air traffic control of things moving around, but he's also making wine for clients and stuff. But we have an enormous staff that that's all that they focus on is making sure that the machine or the factory keeps working. How it all works on a day-to-day basis, especially during harvest. I mean, right now, there's a little bit of a, it's kind of crazy because we're bottling. You know, harvest is still a month and a half away, hopefully. (laughs) But during harvest, as a owner, director of a custom crush business, you have to be very careful about the clients that you bring in to that facility. So let's say, for instance, that we crush just over 600 tons in our facility. So let's say I have, and I can't do 600 tons all at one time, but if I go out there and I get three 200-ton clients from Russian River and all they make is Pinot Noir, and every one of those grapes is going to become ready within about a seven-day window. One guy, maybe he's a low-alcohol guy, so he's going to pick early. And one guy's a middle-of-the-road guy, but he's going to pick in the middle of the road. And then the other guy's going to hang it, you know, and get it kind of ripe. doesn't matter. All that stuff's going to come due like that. And they're all happy to sign up and pay the bill until they figure out that there's really no room for the grapes to be crushed, right? We're out of tank space. We can't just get it done. So you have to take a look at the clients that you're bringing in. So we have people that are on the very early spectrum and on the spectrum of picking early in that they're, that's the profile of wine that they're making. We have people from right in our backyard. I mean, we're basically in the Russian River Valley. We've got a lot of clients from that area, but we only have enough that we know that we can kind of digest in the amount of time that they're going to come to us. And harvest really does break down into three big chunks. You've got the beginning, the middle, and the end, right? So the end super cold climate Syrah, Napa Valley Cabernet that's trying to achieve the numbers that we try to achieve with a lot of Napa Cabernet, right? So they're on the back end. I'd say dessert wine, but we, I mean, that's, I think we'd make process one ton of dessert wine, right? So there's all that. We've got on the front end, we have the guys making some sparkling base. We have the people trying to hit, you know, 11.5 to 12.5 alcohol. And then we have kind of the middle of the road. So we have this whole thing planned out and through the miracle of software systems, we use InEvent, which is our seller work, all of our seller activities. It's an amazing product. I've worked with that company for a long time, helping develop their technology as well, like to adapt it to Custom Crush, because it's a tricky business. It's not like a standard winery. You know, we have to really take a look and do things a little bit differently. So that plus the old magical Excel <laughs> and just knowledge, you know, time in the business, we're able to kind of push all this stuff through. People come at us with a lot of requests and a lot of wants and wishes, but ultimately between Luke, my director of winemaking and myself, we're the air traffic control guys. We're in control and we ultimately say what gets done and what doesn't get done in a certain time. But because we've laid the groundwork, we're able to get it all done and make it a really smooth experience for our clients. 
So diving in a little bit to that, how does production actually work at Grand Cru Custom Crush? Does You said you have a director of winemaking. Do they make all the wines and your clients just provide like work orders and inputs? Or do some wineries have like their own winemakers who are doing a lot of the work? Yeah, both. So at this time, about, I'd say, 12 to 14% of our production in the entire facility is under the control of my director of winemaking. So Luke is in the vineyards from bud break all the way through to calling the picks and overseeing the wine production all the way through to bottling. That's a part of the business that we're continuing to grow and will grow over time. We feel that we like the, you know, it's good. It's a good part of our, our, not our whole business is made up that way, but it's a segment of the business that we really enjoy. Luke enjoys it and he's amazing at what he does. So it's great. The rest of the clients that are there, they're heavily involved in the day-to-day process of making the wines. And I always say it's not something that's a requirement of mine, but it basically is. I mean, we need to see you. We need to be involved with you. We need to know what's going on. And we all have a really great time doing it. You know, I've worked with some amazing people over all these years and continue to this day to have a list of clients that they're amazing. They're so talented and the knowledge sharing that takes place amongst everybody in a facility like this, sometimes people get into a jam and chances are somebody else has already been there before. So constantly interacting, talking, enjoying the whole process is, it's really, you know, it's a family. However, that being said, anything and everything that does go on is controlled through a work order through the system. Whether you're there punching down your own tank or they're just watching, right? So not typical of all custom crush places. So there is still a big segment of the business out there where, and you'll see it, you'll interview and talk to clients that are used to it. And they'll lead the conversation with a one or two page document that says, well, this is our protocol. This is what we do. And I'm like, well, that's great. But, you know, (laughs) you need to tell us on each one of these little steps, like, Because it's different every time, right? Like, sure, there's repetition and there's things that you always do. Like, yeah, we clean the tank before we put grapes in it. I got (laughs) that part. But, uh, (laughs) you know, do you really want three punch downs today? Or do you want to come in and you're going to taste? And maybe we're going to change that to a pump over. Maybe we're going to switch to a Delastage. Maybe we're going to do some different stuff because it's not the same every day, you know. So the clients that are within our facility, they're there during harvest. Every one of them is there basically every day. And Luke and I are just doing our job to kind of coordinate and process and get everything done. And and then we, as they say, lather, rinse and repeat. We come back tomorrow and we do the same thing again. So So one of the big things, and you sort of referenced this earlier with a custom press facility, is that you have some aggregated sourcing, right? You can buy Mm -hmm. whether it's argon, but even maybe bottling, packaging or grapes. Do you, what types of things do you actually have aggregated and preferred sourcing from where you can leverage the scale to help some of these smaller clients? I think that there's, so the only areas where we exercise that would be on any of the supplies that we use day to day within the winery, but that's on our tab. So, you know, like we don't really want a client to have their own account to get argon and nitrogen because that makes no sense, right? And then there's the thing, well, that's my bottle of nitrogen, not your bottle. It's like, no, 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 no. We take care of all that stuff. We take care of the sanitizing chemicals and the wine addition, the basic wine addition stuff, which is, like I said, tartaric acid, nutrients. We don't really buy yeast because actually most 
of our clients are actually going through native fermentation. So it doesn't really do us good to buy a bunch of yeast that it just sits around and goes bad. When it gets down to things like bottles, labels, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that's a little bit of a personal choice that I wouldn't think that anybody could really get involved in from a custom crush standpoint, unless that was falling under the category of us making, you know, all the wine, because it's, you know, go to a trade show someday, you know, and you guys can see there's like a million different bottles, right. And a million different corks and all these different foil vendors. And that's really kind of a personal choice, a brand choice. And I don't really see us getting involved in that as it's, you know, the committee to come up with the plan would be a little too involved. So for all intents and purposes, from looking at it from a business standpoint, yeah, I'm sure there's ways to do it, but it's just, it might be a little too tricky. And grapes, the big, I would say with sourcing fruit, where we get involved there is we have a lot of connections because we're seeing fruit coming from so many different sources, but likewise, our clients have those same connections as well. So that is more about just knowledge sharing of like what's out there. Like, hey, I need some Malbec. I can't find any Malbec. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> we actually happen to have some that we're custom crushing or, or we're just processing it as bulk wine for somebody else. So we can sell you some of that or, oh, I know they still have three tons out there. Why don't you call this person? So, so that's kind of how that works. At no point is it a deal where we're saying like, hey, we got 20 tons of Pinot. Come in here and you know take your chunk of it. So other places might do that. I don't know. But in my entire time in the business, it's never really happened. So So most clients are coming to you with their grape sources already as a starting point. Yeah, they either own their own vineyards or they already have their contracts in place to purchase their grapes. They either have their own winemaker or we're doing it. They have all their barrels or they're asking us, you know, hey, do you guys have the line on used barrels? A lot of custom crush places don't really want a lot of used barrels coming in from the outside because... 98% 98% of the time, that's where problems come from. So, you know, once we start to get good used barrels in house and we have our own way of taking care of things, and I'm sure everyone else has theirs too, but I know ours works. So, we don't, <laughs> we try real hard to not let the used barrels go away. It's like, yeah, if you need 10, we'll sell them to you, do whatever. But yeah, I don't want some random truck showing up with a bunch of cooperage in it that. And we don't know the history on. So, little brother Mice's never hurt anybody, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. It's like, hey, look at this. You know, it's funny because we've got a really strict set of procedures and protocols. I mean, the booklet is ridiculous, right? You know, but it has to be because it has to be a level playing field for all the clients. So, you walk into our facility and you look at, you know, here's this barrel from 2014, right? That's not a new barrel, obviously, but it's pristine, right? It's clean and not stained with wine and not covered with mold. And if it does get stained, when we pull it down to top it, we're going to clean it, scrub it, and then use our procedures to get it clean again. That's how the barrels look. There's a whole nother process for how the barrels are stored when they're empty. Like that's it. And we write the rules on that. And that's how we roll. Other places, they do what they want to do. But like you walk in there sometimes and you're like, holy smokes, man. (laughs) And in the wine business, there's a lot of bad bugs that are out there that are ready to infect and deal with people's wines. The nice thing to know is that, you know, most of the time they don't jump off of the floor and come through the sky and land into your barrel. It's more of like somebody takes that bug and puts it there. Like they bought a bad barrel and didn't treat it or they 
didn't sanitize their wine thief when they were going from barrel to barrel to barrel, right? So like you have to follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, things don't propagate and go bad. But if you don't follow the rules, then I don't know, man, <laughs> could be a bad time. <laughs> so, so we got a long list of rules. <laughs> got it. Custom crush equals rules. I like it. Yes. Lots of rules. <laughs> What is the business model of Grand Cru Custom Crush? And is it pretty standard compared to what the rest of the industry is doing? I think there's two basic paths that Custom Crush businesses go down. One is what we is referred to as the a la carte model. And that's where you bring me 10 tons of Pinot Noir and I'm going to charge you, you know, $610 a ton to process it. But that doesn't include punch downs. So I'm going to charge you for those. And then it doesn't include pressing the grapes off. So I'm going to charge you for that. And it doesn't include the forklift time to move your barrels. So I'm going to charge you for that. So great. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it in the way I've always done it is that we have a per ton fee and we cover everything basically from grapes in the door to up until the bottling. And yeah, when you, a lot of people see the number and they're like, Oh, man, that's a lot of money. I could go over here and get it done for like, well, that's fine. Go, go ahead and go over there. But <laughs> take a hard look at all their rules because you may quickly surpass what we're charging for you know an all-inclusive rate. And a lot of my friends in the business, they too are on the all-inclusive rate. It's just easier. It's a lot easier for a client. For me, I can basically know and model my revenue stream every year, right? Because I'm going to crush X amount of tons at X amount of rate. And that's what my income is going to be. We take that, we divide it out over 12 months. So, you know, cash flow is king in any business, right? And the custom crush business is no different. There's times when we really need a lot of cash. There's other times where it's not as bad, but we spread it all out. And then from a wine producer standpoint, it's easy for them to understand too. They're like, yep, we're going to crush 50 tons this year. And this is what that bill is going to cost. So they have their great bill. They have their consulting winemaking bill. They've got their custom crush bill, their barrel bill, and they put it all into their magic spreadsheet. And, you know, then they say, well, we're barely making money, <laughs> but this is fun. So, <laughs> so they continue on. <laughs> so you were saying there's a per, there's like this all-inclusive per ton fee. I'm assuming it has to be dialed into the parameters that that person's looking to, whether they're going to do a three-year elevage or just get it to bottle as quick as possible. I'm assuming that, that there's some variability in those fees. There is. So the only, the large fee is always focused on the first year, right? Because that's the processing of the grapes year. That's the, you know, rack and return post ML. That's the top every, we'll top every two weeks, but a lot of times it's more like three or four our facility, you can kind of go a little bit longer between toppings. That's because we have really high humidity in the barrel rooms and all this other stuff. I mean, it's great, right? So we're not interacting with the wines as much as other places have to, but all of the big bulk of labor is wrapped up in that first year. Now, if somebody doesn't do their rackings prior to bottling, right? So they've already kind of paid for that, but that's gonna, they're going to kick the can down the road if they over-vintage that wine. The only thing that's going to happen when they over-vintage the wine is, A, they're kicking the can down the road of that work, the pre-bottling work. 
But the other thing they're doing is they're extending the time that those barrels are in our facility. And that's a tough deal, right? Because I've seen a huge shift in that in the business since I started way back when. We used to have anywhere from, say, 25 to 35% of wines would be over-vintaged, held over to the next year. If it was Cabernet, of course. Cabernet is not going to get bottled vintage to vintage. Or if it is, then, you know, they're doing something else with it. But Pinot, Syrah, Chardonnay, so on and so forth. Everybody was coming out of barrel right before they picked grapes for the next year. I've seen that trend upwards of 70% now where wines are being held over. And there's not a lot of work to do on those wines. Once you get past harvest, they do still need to be topped. They occasionally need to be racked. And eventually, they're going to have to go to tank and get bottled. But the biggest thing that it does for a custom crush facility is it takes up the floor space. So when we designed and built Grand Crew, we designed it with the ability to basically take two, it's a squeeze, but two entire vintages worth of barrels underneath the roof. Not all places are laid out that way. So that's really expensive floor space. But let me put it in perspective this way. If we didn't have the space, the wines have to go somewhere. And that normally means they go somewhere out of our control. So now they're in another facility and eventually they have to come back to get bottled. And that's where problems can come up. If a wine leaves, you don't want it coming back. Well, it can come back if it's healthy, but if it's not healthy, then it can't come back or it has to be dealt with. And those are uncomfortable situations. In terms of like, if you had a ballpark, if someone is interested in doing a custom crush thing and they want to say, hey, I want to make three tons or whatever, of six tons of Pinot Noir, what should they estimate in terms of like, what's kind of the going rate for that first year? Well, so for just the crush fees in general, the Sonoma County is trending more towards 2,700 to 3,300 ish per ton. Napa is twice that amount. Paso Robles, Central Valley, I can't really speak to it because I don't really track it that much. But a lot of times people like to equate that to per case, right? You know, so Sonoma County hovers right around 30, probably 38 to 42 dollars a case, maybe 45. There's a lot of things that depend, right? Yields. When I first started in this business and everyone's like, yes, this is Sauvignon Blanc and you get 62.5 cases per ton off of every ton. I'm like, wow, that's a lot of wine. Well, that's not premium wine production. We get about 51 to 53 cases per ton. (laughs) So it, you know, because right, like don't press as hard on the grapes at the end of fermentation or don't press as hard in the press or God, that press wine tastes like crap. I'm going to put that in my second label bulk thing where it disappears and it's still good wine. But that vineyard designate three tons that you picked off the little sunny knoll in the middle of the, you know, that's not, you're going to get about 51 cases a ton off that vineyard. That's it. So, (laughs) so the number kind of skews. We are around basically $3,300 a ton at, at Grand Cru. We are definitely one of the highest priced in Sonoma County, but that includes a lot. So it, it's kind of, a, again, it's a skewed number, right? That includes use of our hospitality area, which is gorgeous, right? And that's, again, back to the first part of our conversation, the trick to this business selling the wine. Well, you come in and use those DTC tasting salons and you keep pounding the pavement, you're going to start selling a lot of wine. So we've seen it happen. <laughs> and as a reference for the, if I want to over vintage and carry over for another year of Elevage, what kind of fee would that be if the first year is kind of inclusive at 3,300 a ton? 
we usually tack on about three hundred to four hundred dollars a ton extra, and we kind of build that in in the beginning. Because if you're going to bring us Cabernet, we already know that it's going over, so we just change the rate. And again, it spreads the cash flow out, and you know helps. So, is there any other fees that you know clients may get asked about throughout the process? Well, if we're in charge of the winemaking, that's a fee, right? That gets added in. Filtration, we are super proud in that we have such an amazingly clean facility and we have a large client base that really, really likes to get to the end of this without filtering. (laughs) We don't include filtering because we don't always do it. You know, I'll tell you one of the most satisfying things is you get to the end of, you know, Elevage and you're ready for bottling and you push all the wine up the tank and you pull up the samples and you're like, this wine is crystal clear, clean. Like we're going right to bottle unfiltered. That's, I should say, it's not an easy thing to do in the business. You just got to follow the rules, you know? (laughs) And if you follow the rules, yeah, you can get there, right? And, you know, my team is very vigilant on that. And we really, you know, we stick to those rules. And and a lot of our clients are going to the bottle unfiltered, which is amazing. Because that is a, that's, it's not a huge cost, but it's a cost, right? And everybody's trying to mind their costs. So we don't include that. And then a lot of custom crush places don't include the cost of bottling. So bottling is, if you have a custom crush facility that has a bottling facility built within it, that's great. That's amazing. It's really hard to justify bottling equipment until I would honestly say you get north of 100,000 cases a year in production. I've visited some places that make about 3,000 cases a year and they have their own bottling line. That's awesome. Everyone in Italy. Good job. (laughs) Right. Right. And like, here I am sitting in, you know, in the cellar at Mayo Camise and it's amazing. And on one side, it's the old cellar and we're in there and it's dark and lovely. And and then on the other side, here's this little monoblock bottling line. And like guys are in there, you know, going through the motions, doing the bottling, whatever run that was that day and stacking it in the little crates. And that's awesome. That's not how it works at my place. We actually had a bottling line back in the Copan days, and I got rid of it as fast as I possibly could. One thing that is hard to kind of stomach, but it's something that as a winemaker and as a business owner, you always have to remember right after that part about selling the wine, the last thing we do is push a cork in that bottle. You better be right. You better have a big book of rules because there's a lot that can go wrong on that day. So. We use people who are professionals in the business. They have millions of dollars invested in their equipment and they back their big shiny trailer up to our back door and away we go. So that's kind of how bottling usually works in the world of custom crush. What about the trend of low alcohol, no alcohol wines? Obviously, like, I mean, do you guys do any reverse osmosis or send out for dealk? So low alcohol wine, non-alcohol, I can't really speak to. I've honestly tried three of them, and I guess I need to explore that a little bit more. They taste like vinegar in a bottle, so um, <laughs> maybe that's not quite figured out yet, or maybe I haven't found the right ones. Low alcohol wines that the ones that I have watched been made made in my facility, oversaw them, so on and so forth, is purely based on like picking prediction, you know, getting things in at the right time at the lower sugar levels and seeing it through aging. When you de-alka wine, usually you don't really try to do that. That's not the most gentle process for a wine. Wine doesn't really, wine doesn't like to go through that process. And I would say 
there was actually a big trend of it. And I feel more like about eight to 10 years ago where that equipment was starting to become a lot more accessible to everybody, right? It wasn't just buried within like some Gallo processing plant down in Modesto or something. You know, hats off to Gallo if they helped develop it or some big operation in France or Italy. It's really cool from an engineering standpoint. It's totally rad. But from a premium wine production standpoint, wines don't really like to go through that. So our clients are always striving to, you know, if if they want to hit a low alcohol number, they're trying to do it through picking it right and, and getting it done. So a lot of times if it has to go out for that, it's because it's some little component of a bigger blend and they're just trying to, you know, shave a, a percentage point off of it. And it's not real common anymore, at least in my world. So so Grand Cru Custom Crush is a cooperative facility, at least according to your website. Mm-hmm. Does that mean your member wineries own part of it? And if so, how does that work? No, it's, I mean, I think of it as a co-op as like a place where, all these people are working together and making wine, but no, it's the bill for that place is on us. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, so our clients are basically, they're basically renting space from us, you know, and technically as an alternating proprietor or it's alternating premise, that's how the contracts are kind of written. Like you need enough space to do 60 tons of production. Well, this is what the fee is. So it's, I guess I didn't really want to call it like a country club because everyone's a member of the country club, right? But that's, it's not like that. So I guess we use the term co-op a little loose, but no, it's owned by my partners and myself and we're on the hook for all of it. So. So you'd mentioned that obviously selling the wine is the hard part of the equation, Mm -hmm. not just making the wine and that Grand Cru Custom Crush provides the tasting rooms that they can, the salon tasting rooms that they can book out so they can host tastings. How many people come to Grand Cru Custom Crush every year and taste some of your clients' minds? Actually, quite a bit now. It's funny because, you know, everyone builds a business and they're like, yeah, we're going to like cut the ribbon and we're going to be just jamming with people. And well, that's not always how it happens. You know, it takes time. People have to find you and so on and so forth. But we, I don't have the exact number. And of course, Nicole, my director of hospitality, she's amazing. You know, she could probably ramble this off the top of her head. But I will say that we are consistently busy now, not so much on a daily basis, but definitely focused more on the Thursday through Monday, just general wine, wine country tourism. But a lot of people are coming through the door there at times where like, we'll have every one of our tasting salon booked out. Our clients basically book those out. They take about an hour and a half to two hour increments. And again, we have an amazing software system we use to help manage all of that. It's called Talk. It, uh, they got started in the restaurant business for reserving tables and wanted to venture into the wine business. So we were one of their earlier clients. So Talk is amazing. That's integrated into our clients' websites. It's integrated into our website. You know, so people are booking and making tastings online and they're like, oh, this is so great. You know, we're coming to taste with Black Kite or with Maritana. But the reality is, is yeah, you're doing that, but you're doing it through talk software, which is managed by Grand Cru and the tasting rooms are managed by Grand Cru. And so all of this is happening in the background. The clients show up in their shiny car and they get out and they're like, wow, this place is great. And of course, if it's Black Kite, you know, their hospitality people are there at the front door to meet them. Hey, welcome to our facility. You know, here's a glass of Chardonnay. Let's check things out real quick. And then we adjourn to our tasting room. And so from a customer perspective, it's really brilliant, right? Because the customer, they're getting the full hospitality experience as if that was Black Kite's own wine. You know, like 
they don't know. It says custom crush up on the front of the building, but nobody pays attention to that. They're being greeted. They're being toured. They're being catered to. They're being talked to. They're given all these amazing wines. And it's really a neat process that allows our clients to basically make that direct-to-consumer connection, which is so critical. And then that usually equates to sales on site and then sales further down the road. And like, poof, in an hour and a half or two hours, that's over with. And those clients are off to the next place. And we whisk in, clean the room, get it ready. And here comes the next group. (laughs) So it's been great. And then our customers will, our clients, I should say, will also host like customer pickup weekends where they have a mailing list and you know, it's their spring release or whatever. So they'll book out either part of the production area or they'll book out a couple of the tasting salons. And, you know, they can have quite a few people show up and again, taste, purchase more and pick up their orders. So one of the things we told our clients right from the get-go, you know, we said, yeah, this it's fancy, it's shiny, it is expensive, but we promise you if you take advantage If you really push the marketing and you take advantage of these tasting salons, it's going to change your business. And I'm ever so proud to say that it it really has. It's changed our clients' businesses for good. Awesome. So do you think the custom crush business is one that's growing now? Or is it something where you think there's sort of limited demand and we're at capacity? Mm, I felt like it's a tough thing, right? Because back when you're ready to start this new place, you're like, God, is it? It was the time to do this. And there's so many places that offer custom crush. I would say that it is still growing. You know, there's a, I actually live here in Healdsburg, right in downtown. And there's another facility that's coming online just for this harvest. You know, they're going to crush maybe five to 600 tons at their facility. I can't remember the total number, but, but yeah, it's ever evolving. And again, back to the way early part of the conversation, it kind of depends on what part of the custom crush business that they're in. We have a business here in town called Red Custom Crush, right? And I forget what year it was built, but it was built and then has been expanded. And then there's been wine storage facilities basically on either side of it that have you know been ground up projects that have been built. They focus on more of like, oh, we have, you know, we have an extra 120 tons that we need to get crushed. So You've got, okay, great. Well, we 20 ton fermenters. We got five of them. Line them up, fill them, you know, and then the wine gets fermented in 10 to 12 days and it's pressed off and it's pumped over to another building where it goes into a tank and then a tanker truck shows up and it's off. Well, that's a custom crush business. So and they've grown by leaps and bounds, you know, since they first came out of the ground. So I guess it's ever evolving. You know, not a lot of places that are focused on our level of service. There's a few, a few in Napa, a few in Sonoma, but more of it is, I think, towards the larger production side. So, because the wine industry is continuing to grow. I mean, you know, it's a funny thing. And when I first got into it, I thought, oh, everybody drinks wine. And then you start to really go through and you listen to some of these trade discussions and market segments and stuff. And there's still a lot of ground to cover with wine consumption. And, you know, the whole thing of rolling through generations, right? Like, Now the big thing is, is that we're, you know, we have the baby boomer generation that's kind of, their sellers are full and they're kind of tapering off. And then you've got the, I guess, I think I'm a Gen Xer. I don't know what I am, but I'm in the middle and we're at a point where maybe we're starting to stock our sellers up a little bit. Then we have this whole new crowd, the millennial group that people are trying to figure out, well, how do we market to them and how are we going to capture their business? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's always evolving and is the market saturated? I guess not. I don't think it is. So All right. 
So we want to wrap up on a more personal note and we're curious on what was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year and who did you drink it with? Love this question. Actually, I was reading that in your notes. So two wines, a little bit of a background real quick. I actually quit drinking for three years straight. So just, you know, like one of those things where it's time to just take a little break. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of people drank my share, which is great. (laughs) We kept making more and and we're sending more to them. That's awesome. But I took a break and coming back into it, really like a different focus on some stuff. So white wine, Dan Petrosky, a dear friend of mine. So I would say the last bought is 2019 vintage, I think of Ania from his uh, Massacre brand. Dan's one of the most talented guys in this entire business. And every drop of wine he makes, I think, is is like just breathtaking. But his 2019 Ania gets my vote for the white wine. And as with almost all white wine, I would drink that with my wife. And she's like, holy smokes, this is great. I'm like, yeah, Dan made it. Of course it's good. <laughs> so absolutely love that wine. It's brilliant. And then for my latest and greatest red Again, consumed with my wife. I think at the end of a really long week where we were like, oh my God, just like so tired. I'm like, yeah, I think we should try this. So 2018 Allo Corton from Folin, Arbelay, I believe is the, I love Burgundy and my bank account doesn't, but whatever, it's fine. It's only money. That wine blew my mind. So it's, that's the one. I was like, holy smokes. Used to be the burgundy hit ratio was pretty low. It's gotten pretty high these days. It's just so of the cost for that consistency. So uh, it's uh... it has, and you know, it's an interesting thing. I go back to uh, an episode you guys had a little bit ago where you were talking about the Diom cork. Mm-hmm. That episode, that's phenomenal, right? I remember when that first came out in this business, and I'm like, "Whoa, this is like really, really cool." And I will tell you, hands down, that I absolutely hate a cork bottle of wine. And I've had a lot of them. And usually it's on some like big ringer magnum that we purchased for some special event. I, and I, I can almost go back and recite the times that it's happened. And you're like, here we go again. But the more and more that that cork technology has been adopted and propagated, you know, throughout the U.S., throughout France now, which I used to never see those corks on Burgundian wines or Rhone wines. But now I see them all the time. And especially with Italy, too. They work, dude. That would be my pick for white and then the, the Corton for my red. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for uh, your personal context and also sharing so much information about your business. We greatly appreciate it. And thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. It's awesome. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us and bring you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.